My counselor at the time said I should be a civil engineer. Hmm. There were a lot of jobs for civil engineers. You know, I was good in math. Probably pays better. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm I'm standing in this long line of civil engineers, right? And uh, I look over and the the uh, architecture school, the guy's sitting there all by himself. <laughs> Nobody's talking to him. Wow. So I Looks went like over fun. there and started yeah. talking to him. <laughs> so you're an architect because you don't like waiting in lines. Like that's what started. <laughs> Hi. Hello. 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 Hello and welcome to Architecting. Hi, welcome to Architecting. This is Rebecca here with Adam, the host of the podcast. Hey, Adam, who's on the podcast today? Well, today, right now today, we have uh, the Young Architect of the Year for Colorado uh, sitting with us here. The, the, AI, the 2023 AIA Young Architect of the Year, Rebecca Wagner. Congratulations. We just had a good uh, award ceremony on last week and rebecca came away with that award first first time uh applying very honored yeah big big honor oh geez our kids are waking up from yeah, nap this might need to wait unless you want them on the podcast hold on let me go get her okay yeah i sleep you realize the headphones are falling out oh okay good so we got the kids back to nap it was funny, I didn't tell you this the other day. Uh, like a teacher or somebody told me they asked Eli about the award that you got. And they said, oh, did your mom win a really big award? And he said, no, it was just kind of like medium size and it was just a piece of wood. <laughs> That's about right. That sums it up. The actual, the actual award was just a, a smaller uh, uh, uh piece of wood but but yes i think it was i think it was big uh i was kind of hoping one of the kids would come out when we'd hear what they thought about architecture but because it is a little fitting with our guest today uh i think i think this might be the first single father architect that we've had on the show Oh, really mm-hmm. interesting yeah so we we have had we have ron abo on this is the guy that i've obviously a, a pretty big figure within Colorado, Colorado architecture mm-hmm. and uh, just just won, uh, just was awarded FAIA this year. Uh, I've been hearing a lot about him from a lot of community members, especially like Patricia Joseph, uh, about just what a what a good person and, and, and leader he was. And yeah, he came he came over to our house and met him for the first time or first time I've really talked with him for a long time and and it was just a a great conversation just just felt really deep and genuine and felt like we connected well uh he's done a a ton of things he's he he started his own firm 47 years ago oh my goodness graduated from CU in 1969 so we got into kind of a lot about what what was that like graduating at that at that kind of pivotal that pivotal year and thinking about the power of architecture especially within community design and and activism um but yeah i mean he's look he's 
He's one of the founding members of, of Noma Colorado. He's been on the Asian Chamber of Commerce forever. He was the first minority president of AIA Colorado. He started the Minority Architect Committee within AIA uh, Colorado. He's he's just done a ton of, of community involvement uh, and also done a lot of architecture, uh, a lot of projects that we get into here. Some, some good stories about the uh, Denver airport. Mm. But... Yeah, fun. Does the Young Architect of the Year have anything else to add here? Yeah, I heard him speak at a AI Christopher Kelly event. And it's funny, right before you said it, I was thinking genuine is the word that mm. comes to mind. Like he was just so, he was so engaging and genuine and humble and yeah. just like really, really inspiring. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, okay, I always say this, but I really enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> so here, it, enjoy it too. Here you go. Looking forward to it. Hey, babe, it's me. Um, I was just thinking about how you congratulated me on winning Young Architect of the Year, and I just feel so bad because I didn't mention that you also were on that stage that night getting a design award for your beautiful house project, and I just feel so bad that I didn't say it, so I wanted to say it now. Um, so proud of you, and that project is stunning, and uh, you're a rock star, so um, yeah. Just wanted to let you know. Love you. Bye. But first, here's a few messages from our sponsors. Hey, we're happy to be sponsored by Modern in Denver Magazine. For over a decade, they've been crafting fantastically curated content on Colorado designers and projects, spreading the gospel of good design within our region. And I love how the goal of Modern in Denver aligns with the goal of this podcast to better build up and connect the community of Colorado designers. So go buy a copy of the magazine at your local bookstand, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. Check it out. And now, back to the show. Thanks for coming. Yeah. I'd wanted to meet you for a while, and I ran into you at the, the no, NOMA. NOMA event. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that was a good good springboard again to, to invite you on here but well, great. Um, um yeah i'm excited here yeah this is this is good well here i'll start i'll start off with a um a nice uh awkward hard question the hardest question if you had two sentences to describe who are you what would you say like a like a good part t sketch you know just a yeah. few lines so i am a um third generation Sansei, Japanese American mm. architect, and I am a husband. Uh, I have a very wonderful wife, and uh, I have five children and two, wow. uh, three grandchildren. Wow, nice. Yeah. When you said third generation, is that three generations of architects? No. Oh, okay. Three generations of being, being here in, in the U.S. The US. Yeah. So my grandparents immigrated in the early 1900s oh, okay I, I was getting really excited i've never met like a third third generation <laughs> architect <laughs> i was like this is this is a real wealth of information knowledge uh so let's dive into that so are you from denver or no is that what I heard? so no? yeah i was born in idaho oh yeah huh. and um, we moved here in 1952 mm. when i was six years old so i'm Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. 
DNF Tower was the tallest building. <laughs> There's no I-25, no I-70. <laughs> so, yeah. It yeah. Was, it was a real cow town back then. But moving from Idaho, I mean, it was, was it oh, a pretty big city then? It was, I, right? uh, yeah, so it was a farming community in Idaho. My, my dad was a farmer. Hmm. And uh, so my grandfather, my father's father, first immigrated to Hawaii, worked in the sugarcane hmm. plantations, and Great Western Sugar uh, operated the, uh, the uh, processing plant. They owned the plantation, too. Hmm. And they had a sugar beet factory in Idaho. So they liked the Japanese laborers, so huh. they offered them uh, land to rent and uh, loaned them money for equipment. So there was this huge Japanese uh, community in southern Idaho. Huh. Did they show them pictures of what Idaho looked like compared to Hawaii? <laughs> that doesn't seem it. like a great trade. Uh, well, yeah. uh, <laughs> You know, I mean, it, they were all laborers. Yeah. You know, they uh, Japan was going through some really economic hard times, and you know, they just wanted to make a living. And the idea of, you know, having a place uh, and uh, having their own business, so to speak, being independent and uh, uh, having an opportunity to be in the United States. So he jumped on it. I guess he jumped on it. <laughs> and when, uh, was that in the like the teens or something? They it moved was to Idaho in, or uh, how like how the, old the, he the, was? The, no, uh, what oh, year? So like, is it in the teens or nineteen oh four? Oh, oh, early nineteen oh four, right? Wow. And uh, and so they had five kids here. <laughs> they left two daughters in Japan mm. uh, that they could never afford to bring them over here, and so. They were farmers. Uh, my dad was uh, actually the first to graduate college uh, oh, wow. in his family as a commercial artist. Hmm. And uh, he graduated in 1940. And then the, you know, Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor in 1941, he had uh, enlisted in the Army because hmm. he was going to be drafted. Uh, and if you enlisted, it was you know, less time uh, to serve. Um, but then when Pearl Harbor happened, they took all the Japanese soldiers along the West Coast. Uh, and he was in Fort Ord, California, and they moved him inland. Really? And then in 1944, they formed the 442nd Infantry Battalion, all Japanese uh, American soldiers. Huh. And some of these soldiers were you know from the prison camps that were established yeah. during world war ii where they uh incarcerated all the japanese americans along the west coast and so he was a part of that unit was your family incarcerated as no well? they, been they were no inland so you know the japanese americans inland weren't incarcerated but they were not uh <laughs> I guess, well-received. And right. Governor Carr in Colorado was the only Western governor who welcomed uh, Japanese uh, from the West Coast. Really? When, you know, all that was happening, uh, he, he uh, said, you know, you can come to Colorado. Huh. 
uh, and it ruined his political career because of it. Wow. Yeah. When they came in, was it, it was it all kind of in a, a same location or scattered across the state? So, uh, like you know, a lot a kind of community. Yeah. yeah. So a lot, uh, settled in the kind of Fort Lupton area, hmm. uh, Fort Morgan, uh, kind of Northeast Long I-76. Um, and you know, we're farmers, farm hmm. laborers. Uh, some became very successful. The Sakata farms, uh, is very successful. And, uh, in, Longmont, um, what's the name of the family? You can see the man's face. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some became very successful. And there was a prison camp in southeastern Colorado, uh, Granada. Huh. Uh, and so a lot of Japanese Americans uh, stayed in Colorado and came to, you know, the Denver area. and. Uh, so there was a Japan town along Larimer, uh, Upper Larimer. Really? You know, around 20th, uh, huh. 19th, 20th, uh, up to 23rd. Um, and so the Denver Buddhist Temple yeah. is at 20th and uh, uh, Lawrence. Lawrence, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For Lawrence, yeah. Right, kind of right. Both. Huh. And so I interrupted you there. Did uh, So did your father go to the Pacific Theater? Was he shipped shipped out, or was he? They were shipped out. The four forty second was shipped to Italy first. Oh, and they they fought around Pisa, huh. and uh, and then uh, they were sent to uh, France along the German border, and it was a very famous battle because there were there was a Texas battalion that was uh, surrounded by. Uh, German troops on a mountain, and it was much like the mountains here, you huh. know, heavy pine forests. And uh, so the uh, Texas battalion, which at that time was, there were only 200 men left, uh, were defending, you know, that hill. Wow. The Germans were coming up the hill, and uh, so they sent the the Japanese-American battalion in to save that that Texas battalion. Wow. And so they were coming up. The Germans were firing up at the Texans. They were firing down at the Japanese. And and these uh, mortar bursts would hit the treetops and just, you know, scatter. And so my, my dad was wounded during that campaign. And uh, he uh, spent several months recovering. And uh, then they sent him back to uh, Germany. Really? Yeah. Huh. And the war was over pretty quickly after that. Yeah. And then and then what was his what was his experience like when he came back? So did he come back to California and, and he was still in the army or was he So did he... uh my mother moved uh to Salt Lake City then, um, uh, to be with, you know, the rest of her family mm. and and so when my dad came back he uh, farmed with his brothers. You know, he was uh, had a degree in commercial art, but nobody was hiring Japanese Americans yeah. uh, then. Mm. So he just farmed with his brothers. And uh, then in 1952, a friend of his had moved to Denver, opened up a service station garage, mm. 
right at uh, 38th and Kellum. Really? Yeah, which cool. is a pizza place now. Yeah. You know, or I think it's now turned into a like a taco bar yeah, it's and just, a Pilates studio. Yeah. That's <laughs> you know funny. Where it's oh, at? yeah, yeah. It used yeah. to be fresh pizza, and now it's a Kiki's Tacos. I yeah. think it hasn't right, opened right, yet. Right. But yeah. yeah. Or maybe it has, but yeah. yeah. just before the underpass. Yeah, there. definitely. Right. Well, that, that was my dad's. Oh, two blocks station. from where we're sitting right here, right now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, hmm. uh, he jumped at the chance and uh, loaded us up in a potato truck and moved to Denver. <laughs> how, how many? How many were? You, how many of there were you? So it was just it was my sister and myself and my mom and dad. My brother came later. He was born in Denver. Hmm. And so that's when you were six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was six years old. And actually, we moved. First, we moved to a, a little triplex uh, at uh, around Colfax and Federal. Huh. And so, I, the school that I went to in first grade was Cheltenham Elementary School. And compared to the schoolhouse, uh, farm schoolhouse in uh, Hayburn, Idaho, it was a culture shock. There huh. were there were, you know, African American, Mexican, Italians, Jewish, uh, and you know, I came from this farming community where there were a lot of these Japanese Americans, you yeah. know, who had settled there from, you know, Hawaii, and uh, yeah, it was a real culture shock, hmm. and you know, it was uh, not that far uh, from. The end of World War Two, so uh, a lot of the parents, you know, they wouldn't let their kids play with my mm. sister and I, because uh, there's all, you know, this uh, uh, phobia against Japanese Americans. Even with your your wounded father who fought in exactly. Europe and yeah, yeah. Was was there was there? Did you come into a? a a good sized Japanese community here, or was it kind of just his friend? No, and you know the the Japanese community here was pretty insular, mm. you know, because they they faced you know a lot of discrimination during the war, so they they kind of banded together, and even you know we as Japanese Americans from another community didn't really integrate mm. well with them mm. either. So, um, you know, I went to Lake Junior High School and uh, North High School, mm. and, you know, you could count the Japanese-Americans on one hand, mm. you know. So there weren't a lot of us. Mm -hmm. The Japanese community in Denver was uh, Curtis Park. Oh, really? Yeah, huh. at that time. And still kind of that Larimer area? as well upper larimer what was mostly the businesses I, but the the people uh you know the families lived in curtis park yeah which is not too far from there but huh so then you know it's it's really it's interesting your your father getting getting the first <clears throat> college degree and it being an art degree right right uh, um did did uh did that influence you a lot, even though he wasn't using it professionally? Was that... Yeah, you know, he took a, uh architectural rendering course when mm. he was at the university, and it was a pen and ink wash in the kind of Beaux-Arts mm. style, you know, very classical. Yeah. And it was uh, 
the problem was a terminus uh, of a walk in a park. Mm. And so it had a kind of a domed uh, structure with, uh, uh, you know, columns and uh, uh, very classical, right? Mm. And uh, it it hung in the living room. Really? And and so I, you know, I saw that every day. Right now it sits over my desk oh, cool. in my office. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, for the past 70 years, I've been staring at that that picture. <laughs> what? what? Uh, I... I can, I, you know, I think about that, like, like the, the, there's a, there's two paintings at my, my parents' house growing up. And one was of a, of a barn in a, in a snowy scape. And the other one was kind of a woman with a, probably, an, I think another barn way off, but, you know, just going, like taking naps or whatever. And you don't want to be taking naps and you're just sitting there and you're staring at it. And I just stared at yeah. it over and over. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's right. in my head, it's but like, so, so that, there. that's so interesting right. of, and, and it was it, it it was essentially his own design, right? Like he wasn't drawing, he wasn't rendering some other existing piece of architecture. He was kind of making something up. I guess, yeah, you know. And yeah. so, like, you were kind of imbibing almost like his his design in a way. And, right. And so, how how does that how does that how does it look to you now? Like, you know, do you do you, with an architect's eye of of looking back to it? How how did it kind of change? I don't know if it's or has it always just been much. sort of there. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's just always been there. You know, it it uh, it reminds me of home. It reminds me of him. You know, it uh, it also is kind of a a dream unfulfilled mm-hmm. for him. You know, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons I became an architect to kind of be that next generation that was able to do it right and so so you went through north high and then was it a kind of obvious idea of yeah i want to go to see you for architecture or what you know that that's funny too because you know what yeah i remember in like fourth grade i was 10 years old and we had this assignment you know what do you want to be when you grow up and uh i said i want to be an architect right and I had no idea, you know, what that meant or uh, other than, you know, seeing this picture that my father had painted. And uh, uh, CU had a, like a a day where all the schools came down and at North and uh, it was in the auditorium and, uh, you know, there were various places where you could uh, go talk to somebody from the various schools. And so my counselor at the time said I should be a civil engineer. Uh, There were a lot of jobs for civil engineers. You know, I was good in math. Um, Probably pays better. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm I'm standing in this long line of civil engineers, right? And uh, I look over in the the, uh, architecture school, the guy's, sitting there all by himself <laughs> nobody's talking to him wow so i you know Looks went like over fun. there and started talking to him <laughs> so you're an architect because you don't like waiting in lines like that's what started. <laughs> i i get that yeah yeah that's a personality type i feel like civil engineers are better at waiting in lines yeah 
um, so so that that's that started to influence you or yeah. early on, yeah. Yeah. You know, I I kind of uh you know, understood what what it was and what it took to be an architect and and uh yeah, I was intrigued and so I uh signed up and was accepted and uh yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. So that that program was at Boulder at the time, right? Right. Yeah. And yeah. um what was sort of the biggest surprise getting into architecture school and that that whole experience for you? I think the uh the biggest part of it was the independence, I guess, the hmm. the uh and the responsibility of making your own decisions, right? Hmm. It I was impressed that you had to you had to come up with your own ideas, mm. right? Mm. You had to form a kind of a conceptual idea of what it is that you're going to be designing. And and then you had to draw it. Mm. Uh and that was the hardest part. You know, that I think that's why uh architecture students have all the the all-nighters is because all this stuff is rem- rumbling around in your head, and uh, you there's no just, right answer. Right, yeah. you can't make the decision, you know. Right, yeah. And then the panic sets in, you know. It's yeah. ten o'clock at night, and the paper is blank, and then the adrenaline <laughs> kicks in, and the caffeine, and then you're good to go. Yeah, uh, the, the fear, adrenaline, caffeine. Yeah, architecture. Um, I mean, and then I, I mean, I assume that was an even wider experience, right? Of, of even less diversity at Boulder yeah. at the time. And especially with an architecture. Exactly. You know, so out of our initial class of 40, you know, I was the only, uh, person of color. Actually, we, there was a, uh, Iranian student hmm. there. Um, and we had two women. Wow. Wow. Yeah. This was in the kind of late 60s? It's, it was in the late 60s, yeah. right. Uh, so I graduated from North High School in 1964. Okay. Man, what a time to be going and studying architecture. It I mean, was, what, what, you know, obviously we don't, we can't understand what it's like to study architecture in another time because we've only done it in our time. But, but that had to, I mean, did you feel the kind of radical societal oh. forces? And influencing the work and, and professors there that really pushed you. Yeah, and yeah. it was a it was a time of change. You know, it was uh, you know we had professors that had been there forever, right? Yeah. And then uh, during my fourth year, uh, there were uh, so Richard Whitaker. This is uh, Whitaker, Turnbull, and Moore. Charles oh, yeah. Moore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they did Sea Ranch, right, right. you know, in yeah. San Francisco. Richard Whitaker became the uh, director of design. Huh. And so he brought with him uh, a few of his uh, uh, colleagues. Yeah. And they were young, long hair. Nice. Wrinkled clothes, <laughs> you know. And then, then we had the, the other professors with their, you know, uh, Whales, like Chris White whales on their belt, and <laughs> <laughs> extra 
crispy shirts. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, flat top haircuts. And, yeah. Right. Um, and so that it was a interesting juxtaposition of, you know, uh, styles and philosophies and, uh, it was very heady and, you know, there were campus protests against, uh, Vietnam. There was, you know, civil rights, uh, marches. I mean, it was, it was very heady times. So in my fifth year, we had the option to either do a traditional thesis problem or to be in a design center in Denver. Hmm. And uh, I chose the design center, and partly because I was living in Denver, <laughs> I wouldn't have to commute to Boulder, hmm. but also, you know, the opportunity of, of uh, doing a real project, doing real projects. I mean, we didn't know what those projects might be, but uh, they would be working uh, in the community. Hmm. Uh, so uh, this was... Uh, during the Johnson administration war on poverty um, huh. called Model Cities. Hmm. And, and this is where nonprofit organizations could apply for grants to do whatever, huh. you know, hmm. uh, do training, do uh, food banks, uh, design centers. And so we were housed with this group of counselors who were, uh, counseling uh, people who are just getting out of prison. Huh. So they, you know, would help them, you know, navigate being not incarcerated anymore, you know, help them find housing and get jobs and get them settled and keep them from, you know, being incarcerated right, again. Right, yeah. And so there was uh, uh, a man who, he was... Uh, a Black Panther, hmm. uh, and uh, another um, a Hispanic man who lived in this neighborhood, hmm. uh, a woman who had been in prison before, um, and uh, another kind of radical white guy. Hmm. And so uh, our professor had us do this deep dive sensitivity training for two weeks before we could even start thinking about a project. Hmm. Who, who was the professor? So, uh, well, the, the director was Dwayne Newsom. I don't know if you've ever heard that name. No, no. Uh, and John Prosser. Oh. Uh, yeah. yeah, he was, he was my professor. Hmm. And then there was, uh, Jack Williamson, who was one of Whitaker's, uh, uh, colleagues, uh, you know, he was the hippie guy. Who yeah, lived in Netherland and, uh, uh, you know, dropped the f word every other sentence. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, but he was our kind of day to day advisor, right? And so, so you had the sensitivity training, and then you you dove into the project, and and what? Yeah, what came out of it? What? So the first semester was just kind of understanding. Well, well, there were there were three centers that you could be in. One was the West Side, which was mostly Hispanic. West Side being like from uh, Spear Boulevard huh. to the railroad tracks in huh. Colfax to Sixth Avenue. 
and then uh, Northeast Denver, five points, Curtis Park, and then North Denver, this neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so I was in West West Denver, the West Side Design Center, and uh, we were in an old house, uh, and uh, uh, our first uh, assignment was just to get the lay of the land, you know, where was, what was going on on the west side. Mm. And so there were several organizations there, uh, West Side Action Center and uh, West Side Coalition, uh, and they were all kind of different uh, uh, politically, right? Mm. And the individuals were, you know, either more conservative or radical, right? So uh, it was an interesting experience, Mm -hmm. experiencing that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Then the next semester, our project, that the project that uh, my partner and I chose was uh, uh, Santa Fe uh, had been a two-way street Hmm. with uh, head-in parking, right? Mm -hmm on both sides of the street, they wanted to turn it into a one-way coupler with Kellum, right? Mm. And the neighborhood was like, oh, you know, we don't want this. Uh, What's it going to do to our, you know, neighborhood having these cars coming in at 45 miles an hour through our neighborhood? So it was to to speed up traffic and kind of make it allow, you know, the people from... Anglewood and Littleton to get to downtown Denver quicker. Faster, yeah. Right. Mm. So uh, our project was to find an alternate way of, you know, making that happen. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had several alternatives, including, you know, uh, where the light rail tracks are now to uh, uh, realign the roadway. to make Calumet more the commercial street because it was wider mm. uh, and leave Santa Fe alone because it was, you know, mostly retail. Um, Santa Fe was, I mean, in an urban sense, was the same as it is now, pretty close. I mean, right. the, the same, the buildings are, yeah, pretty much the same. Yeah. Right. And we took it to city council. We took mm. it to uh, the well, first to the uh, traffic engineers, mm-hmm. of course, didn't want to hear it, <laughs> and and it was a it, it was an interesting uh, experience, you know, to really understand who was making the decisions and why, and uh, yeah, where the huh. power was, where the real. Did, power did you have was. pretty long hair at the time? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Nice. yeah. <laughs> And it was black. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you you have that experience, and then you have to graduate at a certain point, and then what do you what do you do with all that? You know, I mean, and you, you're graduating what around sixty nine or seventy or sixty nine, nineteen sixty nine, right? Uh, so, so I was going to be drafted. I joined the National Guard. Uh, really? Yeah, and. Uh, went to work with a fairly traditional architectural firm 
And then at that time, there were several of us in that design center experience that were, you know, working in offices in Denver. And we formed a nonprofit design center hmm. called Environment Incorporated. Hmm. And uh, uh, so EI, for short, was a vehicle that, you know, we would still do, you know, uh, projects um, for community groups that couldn't afford it or to be advocates for for them. Uh, because, you know, like if Parks and Rec were going to do a uh, recreation center, they they would have a prototype that they would put in Washington Park or in Globeville. Oh, really? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, uh, they wouldn't uh, consider what the needs of the, the na- that specific neighborhood was. Yeah. Um, so my... My volunteer project was uh, the Crusade for Justice. Crusade for Justice was the kind of the Hispanic equivalent of the Black Panthers, very Mm. radical, uh, almost, you know, their philosophy was, you know, they would rather be a separate entity, Mm. you know, uh, from the mainstream government. Yeah, was it the um, same kind of uh, like building community centers and and food for children and things like that? that so the, the project were? was they had a uh, their headquarters was an old church building hmm. at Sixteenth and Downing, and uh, uh, Corky Gonzalez oh, yeah. was the uh, you know head of the, the crusade, and he wanted to establish a school for uh, Hispanic youth. That would teach them, you know, their culture, their heritage, and so uh, I designed a uh, uh, the uh, school, basically in the basement of the that church, and then did an addition on the front of the church mm. that would be more, you know, uh, indigenous. Mm. Uh, to their culture rather than, and it was a very, you know, uh, typical uh, red brick, you know, Christian church yeah. facade. Hmm. And so, so, I mean, you were in your early 20s here, right. and, and you were in the National Guard, and you were working for a traditional architecture firm, and you were doing, doing these, these things. And uh, did, did you have... Did you have a family at the time, or were you? I had we had uh, a young, right? Yes, yeah, so my, my oldest daughter. Right? So was it was it the adrenaline and uh, caffeine again powering you through all this? I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot to be doing, and just a lot of different headspaces. It seems like, right? Yeah, I mean, it just seemed like it just seemed like that. That was, you know, I look back on it, and yeah, it was a lot, but you know, it just it was all good really yeah and if i talked to your wife she would say that was good back then too well i'm divorced from her now (laughs) maybe that's one of the reasons right (laughs) it's it's funny like yeah like i'll i'll have a rough day or something and complain to my wife about it and then i'll the next day i'll be like yeah this week's been pretty good and she's like what are you talking about you you just had a horrible day 
oh, I forget about that. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, just the, um, you, you know, I talked to so many people where architecture school is so impactful, right? And you have so many big ideas and then you get out and you have to get a job and it's, it's this yeah. crushing kind of time. But, but for you to be able to continue that, uh, this sort of community emphasis and to, I mean, you, the, the, that addition was built, I mean, ground up, like you had a, your own essentially ground up project pretty early it on. It wasn't, no, no, the addition wasn't built, but the, you know, they did convert the basement into, into classrooms. And uh, the great part about it though, is I got to know the Gonzalez family. Mm. Oh my gosh. You know, I would sit and talk to Corky for hours. You know, we, we, we would talk about utopia. Hmm. What would utopia look like, right? And, of course, from an architecture standpoint, you know, I had a different view of utopia in term, and then, you know, thinking of megacities and, right. you know, Palo Solari yeah. and... Super Studio and, like, yeah. 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 Uh, and, and Corky was all about Mesa Verde and, uh. <laughs> you know, getting back to indigenous values and huh. uh, like that. And, and we'd had these great discussions, great discussions. And he, but Because um, he was running the, a radio station, is that right? No, it, no. Corky, at, at that time, you know, he had been uh, like chair of the Democratic Party. I think he was a, a legislator at one point, but his, his main source of income was real estate. Oh, he huh. was a real estate. He he uh, he had property, right? But you know the the crusade was his passion, right? And uh, he was he was the voice of the Chicano movement, yeah, right? He and Cesar Chavez and uh, others uh, were really the national uh, voice and, for that and- movement. And you really got connected to him through the through the West Side Design uh, no, Center, or uh, you know, actually, I don't know exactly how we first connected, but it was through Environment Incorporated, uh, uh, and you know, we would uh, search for projects, you know, and uh, just get the word out that we were we were out and available. the The neat thing about it, though, is that. Uh, Escuela Tlatelolco was the school, and eventually, it it became a real school. And his daughter Nita Gonzalez was the principal, director of it. So it first started at Forty First and Tejon. Out of uh, Servicios de la Raza uh, was the organization, and uh, they rented space to Escuela. Huh. And so in the 1980s, the city of Denver uh, was getting community development block grant funds from, uh, from the federal government. And uh, prior to that, they were using that money for community type projects, recreation centers, community centers. And uh, in the 80s, they started giving those grants uh, to nonprofit groups. 
So Escuela was one of the first. Mm. And so we renovated a building for Escuela. Um, and then eventually they they got a building at uh, 29th and Federal. We also helped them renovate that. I mean, they became <laughs> like a career-long client. They eventually uh, uh, disbanded. They had, uh, you know, like any a group like that, funding mm. problems. And uh, uh, so Esquila is no longer. But I, I think, you know, they, they changed a lot. And, you know, a lot of uh, high school curriculums, you know, have uh, some of what uh, Esquila was uh, teaching. Hmm. And you, 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 you know, you talked about when you first, when you first moved here, kind of feeling isolated in a way, right? Or, and so did you, did you feel that discrimination going in through, through college and then upon graduation and looking for jobs or in a certain way, like did, did being Japanese kind of help you float between different communities in Denver at all, you know? I think so. You know, I, I mean, I think I was probably more accepted, you know, in the black and brown communities because I wasn't white. Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, I think I felt that because, you know, a lot of the, you know, having a beer after the meeting kind of talks, you know, would flow around the cultural experience. Right. right? Yeah. You know, and, uh, uh, yeah. So I I really enjoyed that that kind of connection yeah. to those communities. But then did it feel more difficult for you to get a job a- afterwards than other I I don't know if really. it 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 was so difficult getting a job, but you know when I started my practice it was during the OPEC oil embargo mm. mid 70s. And uh the, you know, design community was just decimated because of it. You couldn't get a gas tap, you know, uh, uh, projects couldn't get funded. Uh, government spending was non-existent. So uh, a lot of firms were just laying people off left and right. By that time, I was a single parent at two. Mm young uh girls daughters and uh uh you know it was a challenge in those days you know being a single parent especially male yeah being a single well, father yeah anytime being a single and, parent you know yeah. being a professional you know and having to take off to because they're sick or yeah. you know daycare uh wasn't available or, you know, Mm. whatever. And uh, so, you know, I wasn't given kind of the prime jobs. Mm. Uh, And uh, what was the firm you were working at? So during that time, I was working at the ABR partnership, which was Anderson Barker Rinker. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I worked with John Anderson for a while. They split. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's another interesting story, but uh, 
I worked for John for a while. And then, uh, but my, I, I really wanted to work with Barker and Kersikat. So, uh, I, uh, quit Anderson's, uh, office. I went to Europe for a month and I came back and I worked for BRS huh. and they ran out of work. Oh, really? And, uh, so you said, Hey John, uh, how you doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mar- Martha Bennett, pal. Do you, you know Martha? Uh, Martha Bennett, he's Bennett Wagner Grody. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she and I were let go mm. the same day. Wow. So the woman, the minority single father, single father. yeah, <laughs> were let go. Uh, and I, and I don't, you know, I don't fault them. I mean, when I decided that I didn't want to go out and look for another job, uh, I, uh, did what I could, right? And so my first job was uh, uh, designing a porch or a deck for Ron Rinker's ex-mother. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. I'm sorry to let you go, but as your severance, here's a porch. Yeah. yeah. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I did kitchen renovations and you know, addition, house additions. And eventually that kind of grew into, you know, uh, passive solar houses, Mm. you know, earth sheltered, Mm. earth sheltered houses. Uh, I had a partner at the time and he had a brother-in-law in in Vail and we started doing a lot of, you know, mountain work and, and they were, uh, solar, passive solar Mm. houses, some off the, totally off the grid. Um, so because even Anderson was starting to get into that about at the time of the, the, the split, right? Like the uh, community college came along. I just talked about the Alan gas. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and he was talking about that. Yeah. That I worked with Alan, uh, on that project. Yeah. The community college North campus. That seemed like a real kind of experience by fire where there was just kind of no, no information on solar or very little right. and, and having to kind of forge your way. So, yeah. so you were able to take, take that and kind of bring it into a single family world, or I guess that was kind of a trend at the time, right? Uh, in the yeah. early seventies, but well, it was, it was like, you know, energy was so expensive mm. and, uh, especially in the mountains, you know, in Vail, uh, uh, Eagle Vale, um, Beaver Creek area, uh, you know, electricity was hardly even available up there. Mm. So, uh, you know, we were designing passive solar or sheltered houses that, you know, did not need supplemental heat, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they get their power from a Honda generator. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Uh, what little power they need for, you know, lights and uh, like that. Yeah. Wow, cool. And, and so, so I mean, you know, I just started my firm a year and a half ago, and my third firm actually, but but th- this round of it, and and had an 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 infant at that time and a young child, but had a supportive wife with a good architecture job. And and so, like thinking about you, you know, you're you're going off and 
two two kids, single parent, a porch to start off with. You know, like what did did you did you? I mean, obviously there had to be fear there, but did, were you just confident and determined that this is the path and I'm I'm moving forward, or was it? I don't know if I was so confident. Uh, you know, I mean, there were there were many times that I would question. Mm. You know what? What am I doing? What? Yeah. Why am I doing this? You know, why am I beating my head against the wall? Why am I maxing my credit cards out? You why know? did I leave that civil engineer line? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, I remember the. I think the the low point was. Uh, uh, you know, my my car wouldn't start. You know, it was winter. Yeah. So uh, I had an office in lower downtown, and I uh, took the bus, and I hop on the bus, and the bus driver is this guy I was in architecture school really? with who quit, uh, uh, you know, after the second year. Huh. He he got a degree in, in uh, medical, uh, you know, as a lab technician, oh, yeah. right? Uh, but he's driving this bus, this mm-hmm. RTD bus. And he's telling me, you know, the money he's making, and he had just built a house in uh, this very classy area. And I think, oh my God, you know, I my my car won't start. I don't have any work. <laughs> why, why did I try so hard? Oh man. Uh, and and so so how what what was what was sort of that first big project where you know you were like i'm not i'm not just subsisting day by day and like i kind of made it like how 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 far into the firm was was that and what was it you know it was a couple years into it and i uh, got connected to uh uh you know physician who Mm -hmm. had money they had a place in evergreen they wanted to do uh a house in uh, Genesee, mm. and Genesee at the time was just, you know, starting to mm. uh, get going, and so, uh, you know, this was like wow, ground up house, you know, yeah. with a couple of really neat clients, you know, they were very engaged and uh, thoughtful, and you know, had a great eye for design, and and uh, so. Uh, yeah, I thought, yeah, this is, this is it. This is, this is what I want to do. And this is why I'm doing it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I think that was it. That was a couple of years into, uh, into having my own practice. And jump, jump to now. What, what, what was the anniversary you guys just had for the firm? Was it, wasn't it? Well, how long have you had it? So I started the firm in 1976. So what is that? Yeah, forty-six years. Yeah, forty-six years. Yeah. Wow. And, and and I mean, so 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 you have those kind of single-family projects going on, and and the passive solar, um, but you've you've kind of built the firm on more. Uh, kind of renovation projects like larger like historical renovation maybe and more uh kind of governmental and and mm-hmm. how, how did the trajectory of the firm 
kind of progress. Evolve. Yeah, evolve. So in the late 80s, the uh, airport hmm. was being talked about, right? And uh, kind of teams were forming, and, and the uh, Mayor Pena was in office, hmm. the first uh, minority uh, mayor mm-hmm. uh, for for Denver, and and so one of his initiatives was to create a MWBE program, Minority Women Business Enterprise mm. Program, mm. Uh, which you know other cities were adopting, and the uh, the Black and Hispanic contractors were very politically active mm. at the time, and and they were you know kind of driving this. Uh, and so a handful of us, uh, Bert Bruton, Carol Massa, uh, uh, Roy Balls, uh, Ron and Mike Roy Ball, uh, you know, also talking to the, uh, contractors about professional services being included mm. in, you know, an ordinance that would, uh, provide, uh, uh, preferential procurement uh, for minority and women-owned businesses. Yeah, I was a member of the AI Denver. The AI had a separate Denver chapter. I was on the board, and I created a minority business uh, or a minority architects committee. Hmm. And uh, one of the charges of that committee was to develop a uh, survey uh, of minority and women businesses in the Denver area to, you know, determine capacity. Mm. Are there, you know, firms out there? Right. So, so we did. And back then it was a, uh, it was not real well received yeah. by AIA or the mainstream architectural firms because they felt, like the women and the minorities were going to take take all the work, right? Take the work away from them. Which, right? when the survey came back, how many, how many, how many minority or women-owned firms were there, or architects? You know, you could count them on one hand. Right. Yeah. So anyway, the, you know, the ordinance was passed uh, as a, you know, as a result of that, we were um, on a team that designed the uh, concourse buildings out at the airport. And, uh, uh, yeah. So, that, was, so was this when, was, was this after the Fentrist uh, main hall? No. No, no. so, so they no. did the concourse buildings first? and Yeah, so, uh, you know, you look at the concourse buildings and the, the, the central cores. Yeah. Well, that's what the terminal design was, times ten. Huh. You know, very, very lacy steel structure. Yeah. You know, with uh, clear story lighting, uh, like that. That's what it was supposed that, to. That, that was, was originally uh, how it was. Perez uh, designed the original concourse building. Who who is that? So it's uh, Augie Perez. Huh. Augie Perez was from Louisiana. And he had a, a uh, office here, 
but the story is the only reason he had the office here was so that he could write off his trips to his Colorado ranch. (laughs) 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 And so Augie was, uh, you know, he was a a businessman first, I think, before he was an architect. And uh, anyway, uh, Alan Brown, do you know Alan Brown? He's He's an architect. Uh, here, well, he he was a part of the Denver office, uh, Luis Acosta. So, LOA Architects, I think, is still around. Oh, yeah. I think Luis has retired, but he was he he ran the Denver office. Anyway, Perez won the contract to design the terminal, um, and and so it was this you know stepped up formed uh structure and then and then uh, after the schematic design package uh was put together uh they put it out for another rfp and fentress got the design development construction drawings and that's when hmm. the tent structures were hmm. uh introduced because it was a cost saving huge really? cost saving oh, measure huh. uh, required far less than you know what was uh, the the Perez design because but they, yeah our concourse buildings were patterned after you know the original so they built yours and figured out how much steel was in it and they said hey no we can't right. so so yeah you were involved so so when when you got that project how how large was the firm your firm and did you still have that partner no by that time I didn't have that partner. And uh, so we had we had about uh, ten people. Okay. Yeah. An office in Capitol Hill, um, and <laughs> it was the first computer ah. that uh, that I had to buy. This is the late late eighties. This was in the late eighties, yeah. right? Uh, I think our contract started in nineteen eighty nine, and uh, I. Bought the computer. I bought the software and a pen plotter for twenty five thousand oh, dollars. Wow! And wow, uh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. A year later, the computer was outdated. No way. You know, the plotter was uh, broken, oh. and I was still writing that five hundred dollar a month check. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't want to buy my three thousand dollar computer now, and in, in nowadays money, huh? <laughs> It in that was like an AutoCAD. Was that AutoCAD at the time, or I forget like, what the program did. It actually speed things up and help you, the program itself. No, and so back then it was uh, you drew the you drew whatever needed to be drawn, and then you gave it to a CAD technician uh, who was not an architect. Huh. You know, some some computer nineteen year old. Yeah, yeah kid that knew computers and they put the lines on the screen uh, right but you get some really funny stuff yeah back. <laughs> well and huh just just so that you could plot off more sets essentially or it was it was it, the standard that the airport oh, required really? huh. right huh and they were floppy disks <laughs> huh 
and and so I mean, how long did that project last? That that took you a a, a while. It was, it was. I think we were complete by nineteen ninety two. The airport didn't okay. open until I think nineteen ninety four, but that was because the baggage uh, system fiasco. <laughs> yeah. Right. So the airport was complete, but it didn't have a baggage handling system. Because it was that whole automated system, right? That was supposed to be very revolutionary, and then it didn't work? Is that right. The, yeah. Right. Huh. Yeah. So I, I have all kinds of airport stories. <laughs> the, you, you, know, you know all the secrets? The, the yeah, Illuminati secrets the, down there? Exactly. Yeah. That'll be the bonus part. So the... Uh, uh, the airport director at the time was Bill Smith, and he was this crusty public works, you know, type guy. Hmm. I mean, he was, he was a really nice man, you know, and very fair. But, I mean, he was like, you know, you do, you do what I say, right? So he gathers all the consultants for the concourse design, and he says, I want you to design me a concourse. And I'm going to repeat it two more times. And I'm going to pay the civil engineers, you know, to adjust the uh, uh, the ground. But uh, I'm not paying you guys anything more for reuse. So uh, we designed a concourse. And uh, Concourse E at Stapleton was the last concourse to be designed there. And it had all the moving walkways on the mezzanine, mm. right? Mm. So we had the working drawings done, and the uh, Continental Airlines was the first tenant to sign a lease. And they said, we don't want our passengers to have to take the train. And since there's no walkway down in the tunnel, we want a bridge to our concourse. Uh-huh. And there was a international concourse on the end of the terminal and they took that away so that they could move all the concourses up to create the bridge for for the bridge that goes from a to the yeah to the terminal and then continental said you know we don't want those moving walkways up on that mezzanine we want them down on the concourse level Hmm. So we had to widen the concourse by eight feet. And it affected every drive. Oh man. Every sheet. So uh can't just, just cut cut the floor plan in half and just make a little <laughs> white space. Just tape tape a new piece in there. Oh man. So then United came on as the second tenant. They said they want a concourse B and they said, you know what? We want two sets of moving walkways. Uh-huh. So we had to widen another eight feet. Uh, so we designed three concourses. <laughs> and you got paid for one? For No, we got paid for three. Oh, you did? Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I thought they were going to stick you with that. Yeah. Oh, man. So then, so then, I mean, after that project, did it, I mean, that had to be a huge educational project of just working at a different scale probably and and did right. that help you kind of jump jump scales and and project types yeah you know so more into the you know the government sector um but then you know i i uh, merged with another uh firm 
hmm. in Boulder and uh, uh, brought on four partners. Uh, and and their project base was laboratories, hmm. uh, research and pharmaceutical laboratories. And uh, uh, was it just getting too kind of big? For, for you to be doing yourself, or what was the idea of, of merging? Um, it was, you know, to uh, broaden, yeah. you know, the the uh, uh, the base, you know, of, of clients and uh, project types. Um, and also, you know, having additional partners. Right. Um, That's a lot of hats to wear by yourself. Yeah. Uh, the the owner of that firm, Jim Copeland, mm. uh, actually did not really need to practice architecture. He had, you know, family mm. money. Um, that kind of architect, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. <a> nice. <laughs> and and his vision was to you know exit the firm. I mean, that's why he wanted to merge, right? <clears throat> so uh, after. Uh, a few years, uh, we physically merged in, uh, the firm in Denver. And uh, and we were, you know, a firm of 20, 22 people, uh, had a office in uh, Uptown, and uh, uh, we were humming along, and then 9-11 happened. Mm. And it was like walking off a cliff. Hmm. You know, we had a lot of developer kind of project, pharmaceutical uh, companies, um, a lot of private work, and it it just decimated the firm. Wow. So uh, we had a contract with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, which is a private company, but uh, they got... Uh, DOE funding, and so uh, all of their projects were tied to, you know, federal procurement mm. uh, laws and like that. And uh, the uh, in the federal space, you don't start a project until you have the money, <laughs> right? And the people that are running the projects, they're professionals. You know, they're either architects, they're engineers, they're former contractors, project managers. You know, they're not somebody who doesn't know construction, design or construction. So uh, I decided to move more into the public space then. I applied for 8A status, government, uh, federal government, SBA 8A status, which is socially disadvantaged uh, business. Hmm. And in the 8A program, you can, the federal government can set aside projects for 8As, except for architects. <laughs> architects, at least, it, you know, it's a uh, qualification-based selection, but for 8As, they had to uh, look at the qualifications of at least three 8A architectural firms because mm. of the Brooks Act. And uh, so a lot of the 
8A set-asides, we wouldn't, uh, well, every time a project comes out in the federal space, they have to go to SBA to see if that project to go to one of their procurement specialties like 8A or HUBZone or women-owned business or veteran-owned business, uh, these, uh, you know, procurement vehicles for, you know, some uh, disadvantaged uh, sector of society. Um, but in a lot of cases for 8A, uh, they couldn't because there weren't three architects. Mm. So we would actually call 8A architecture, architecture firms to say, you know, you, you'd be interested in submitting a proposal on this, yeah. you know, uh, and uh, at least it would give somebody, you know, in that 8A uh, world uh, an opportunity. Hey, this episode is brought to you in part by Signature Doors and Windows and Modern Denver Magazine. Now, on to the show. But it it got us into the federal space. And, uh, you know, the federal government is a difficult uh, client. Not difficult, but uh, complicated client to work for. Um, But, like I said, you know, if they have the money, then, uh, you know, the project will go. You know, they won't advertise the project unless they have the money, mm-hmm. right? And you, you are working with professionals. Um, their contracts also generally are multi-year contracts. So they're like, they call them IDIQ indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity <laughs> contracts, right? Nice. And so it could be a boiler replacement or it can be the design of a new research laboratory, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you you take what you you get. Um, and and they have several of those contracts. So first of all, they they ask you for your qualifications. Have you ever done anything like this before? but they don't ask you for fee. And then they'll select, you know, somebody out, out of their IDAQ pool, and then they ask them for a proposal, for a formal proposal. And it's been a, a good deal for us. There, there are, Colorado has the most federal uh, installations here than the Beltway. Really? It has more than the Beltway? No, well, or, or, not, not as more, but uh, uh, the Beltway has oh, the, the most, most and, and then Colorado's really? the second. Huh. Yeah. And, that includes and, the military bases yeah. that are here. And so you you came out of 9-11, and the firm kind of broke up, and is that when you went back on by yourself and then yeah. picked up this, this kind of line of work? Right. Yeah, and, and rebuilt the firm in, in that sense. and um, Looking back, were you able to carry that thread and 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 be carry that satis- satisfaction from kind of your 1969 self and that Corky Gonzalez? Like you're able to pull that through, even with the the, the kind of federal work and the, yeah, the larger and so, work. And 
You know, there there are projects that we do that, you know, for nonprofit groups. I'm on a board of uh, a nonprofit child welfare mm. uh, organization. And so we're, I've been on this board over 20 years, and I've been president of the board for the last seven. But we're doing a project for them right now that uh, th- this this group used to have a uh, residential treatment center for boys, hmm. adolescent boys. And these are boys that were taken out of the home because of abuse or neglect or criminal behavior. Um, and and so Savio uh, House would uh, uh, take up to 28 boys, you know, feed them, clothe them, take care of them, educate them, provide them therapy, you know, if they need it. Um, well, the model has changed that it's not that kid that's in trouble, it's the family. Mm. And so we are doing the first uh, model in the nation of a family treatment center mm. where we'd, we would take, and these were, would be families with substance abuse uh, that uh, maybe are either homeless or on the verge of homelessness, put them into a, 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 a basically a townhouse, three-bedroom townhouse, mm. and, and treat them for up to a year as a family. And uh, so whatever their issue, well, first of all, you know, the substance abuse or alcohol abuse issues, uh, if there are, you know, other physical abuse and neglect issues or, you know, uh, you know, the kids are, of course, uh, having maybe feelings of abandonment, right? you know, like that. So that uh, it's treating the whole family. Mm with whatever issue they, they have. And so it's a six-unit townhouse in Lakewood uh, with an attached uh, staff quarters and uh, counseling rooms uh, uh, for the families. So we're doing that. Yeah. And you were able to design those spaces? Yeah, and, yeah. and create that environment for... Yeah. Well, that's cool. You know, it's like, I... I uh... I feel like we could, with your life, we could do another two hours, three hours here. I feel like well, I have all these notes and like we've barely kind of scratched the surface and all of the, a lot of this. But, uh, you, you know, obviously, obviously, I'd I'd known about you for a long time, but then was able to, uh, uh go to the uh, the Noma uh, holiday party and, and it was really, it was such a cool event and and you were given this big award of this of the the, the mentorship, um. Uh, what what was the title of that? I had that uh, ment- mentorship excellence, right? And like you, I could just, you know, there there's this young and vibrant Noma chapter here, and 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 it was so cool to see, uh, just just the figure that you are within that community. And you know, you were talking uh, about yeah, when I when I when I first started, you could count the minority architects on your one hand, right? And right. you know, obviously, there's still still they're still minority right but but a growing community and and, and again vibrant and and uh to see you as the kind of like you know this figurehead in that is is so cool and and just the impact that you've had on the on the community in, in that sense and then with the 
with the board of the Colorado board of, of professionals, right? You were one of kind of the, the founders of that. Um, and then congratulations on the FAIA this year, right? Oh, thank you. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I just, I, I really appreciate you coming on here and, and telling your story and, uh, uh, for everything you've done for, for Denver. So thank oh, you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it was a pleasure, Adam. Yeah. I've enjoyed it. Thanks. You can visit architecting.com, that's architect-ing.com, to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. Hi, I'm Eli. This show is made by my mom and dad and these people. Heidi Mendoza. Emily Child. Fernando Queiroz. Zach Huff. Trevor Notzko. Aaron Best. Kyle Burner. Rob Cleary. All right, let's get a coffee. See ya. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S., So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.